Let me introduce you to this episode's sponsor. It's 97th Floor, an award-winning Moz-recommended digital marketing agency located in Lehigh, Utah, and Orange County, California. They're known for driving bottom-line value results for clients like Pluralsight, Dell, and Salesforce. Visit 97thfloor.com to learn more. Welcome back to an ep- a new episode. This week's going to be good. Let me give you an idea of where this episode is going. By the way, John is out again this week. He should be back next week for all you Johnny Boy lovers out there. Mm. Hey, what were the nicknames you were talking about from YouTubers last week? Nicknames? Yeah, yeah, like uh, what their fans are called. Oh, like like Low Gang. Yeah, Low and, Gang and the Jake Paulers. Jake Paulers. So, <laughs> so for all you John Hammonders out yeah. there, the John Hammers. John Hammers. That's kind of that's probably better. That name. is better. Yeah, step in the right direction. Yeah. So all you hammers out there, it's hammer time next week. Next week. So this week it's just Brandon and I one more time. Hopefully, hopefully that doesn't affect our friendship. <laughs> Let me give you an idea of what's going on this week. We are going to open up talking about customer service being the new marketing. And then this episode is actually going to be another digital marketing roulette interview edition. Let's get into it. Um, so last time, last two editions have just been straight up, you know, uh, we had three, we had three topics, email marketing, content marketing, and social media marketing that we pulled questions from. Yep. If this is the first time you've heard of digital marketing roulette, we've aggregated common questions that people ask about digital marketing. We do not prepare answers. Oftentimes I have the questions. Brandon's never seen them. I ask them and then he comes up with an organic answer. This time, Brandon prepared the questions. He'll be asking me. This is, uh, this is the interview edition, meaning digital marketing, if you're looking for a new job or you are hiring and want to know some good questions to, to ask potential hires, that's what this edition is for. So we've got a roulette table here. We, we spent a fortune transferring it from our old studio over here. Brandon's got the white ball before each question. He tosses it in there. We have 38 questions. It plops down on one of the numbers. We tell you what number it is, and we read the corresponding question. Love it. So let's, let's start with customer services and new marketing. This is something that Brandon reached out to me earlier in this week saying, hey, is this, uh, would this be an interesting topic? And I said, I don't know. I don't know anything about it. He shared an, uh, uh, an article. I was like, I'm not in love with this article. He's like, no, this just spawned the idea, but I've got some really cool things I want to talk about. Just believe me. It's <laughs> awesome. It's not so vague. And that's, that's all the information I have. So Brandon, customer services and new marketing. What, what is that? So this was written by Micah Solomon. Never heard of him before, but now I have. And this is Forbes, which it's uh, when you read marketing articles on Forbes, totally different than reading an article on something like marketing land. When, when you read any article on Forbes. Sure. Uh, over time, I've learned how fluffy. It's not just fluffy. And basic, dude. Their experience is so terrible now. It's so terrible. They always have the videos going that you can't turn off. You can't like. It's just like you got to wait for the ad. Two thirds 
of the website is just ads and it's just like bombardment and they don't allow ad blocking. So it's like, great. I've got to deal with all these stupid ads that I can't block. You know what? I might actively boycott Forbes now. Well, it wouldn't be hard. Think about that next time you share an article with me. Think about that. Well, let me tell you this. Or sorry, when you said that you hated the article, obviously there's a lot of that that has to do with just you had the fact that you had to log on to Forbes.com. So yeah, that was part of it. But but the the, the general we'll we'll dig into it. But the general gist of the article is that customer service is the new marketing. And um, let me let me ask you this: What did you hate about the article? As I was reading, it's really short. So you could read this in like 60 seconds. That's the entire article, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that was not necessarily bad. Short articles are okay. But as I was reading it, like all I kept thinking was, all he's saying is everything is marketing. Like everything. Mm -hmm. He's like every interaction whatsoever, online, offline, anything that you do is marketing. And he didn't say this, but just to get the sentiment across... It's almost like if you're a CEO of a company and you're walking down the street and you're not wearing the, and you're not wearing the right clothes, that's bad marketing. Like that's how it felt. It's like mm-hmm. every aspect of your life, if you're running a business, is marketing. And if 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 that were what he claimed in the title, where he's just like everything is marketing and here's why, that would be totally different, right? Cuz you could argue, yeah, if the CEO who represents the company is the face of the company and he's wearing you know, trashy clothes that could hurt potential sales. Right. So, I mean, there's an argument there, but this guy says customer service is a new marketing. And then the article feels like everything is yep. a new marketing. It felt like a bait and switch. Like, okay. All right. Well, and, every, and some of the things that he said to be specific, every return you handle seamlessly and thoughtfully is marketing. Every repair you make for a product that proves defective, even after the warranty is expired is marketing. Every time you provide a wow customer experience, adding emotional transportation to the experience of your customer, it's marketing. First company that comes to mind, and maybe it's just because I was just there. I think you were just there. Disneyland. I was just there. And Disneyland is famous for top to bottom. The customer experience is amazing. a terrible experience. Oh, wow. Disneyland. Can I hear about it? I'll give you a, the short version. The Reader's Digest. So the experience started off poorly at the airport. It was a flash trip to Disneyland. I had tickets, plane tickets, to leave at 6 a.m. and then I was going to come home the same day at 7 p.m. So I would get to the park when it opened and then leave at like 5, 6. So, so you have like several hours mm-hmm. to be at the park. Anyway, I missed my flight at the very beginning. The first, like, So I missed the 6 o'clock flight. I had to sit in the airport for six hours until it's an 11.30 flight, 11.30 a.m. Mm-hmm. So I got to the park at 1 p.m. My flight's at 7, remember? So, so I'm just like closing the window some of you might be thinking, why didn't you just go home? I thought about that. But anyway, I decided to go anyway. <laughs> but when I got to Disneyland, I had my... So I didn't have the printed tickets. They were on, at the on-call desk. Mm-hmm. So I had to go to the, custo- uh, the guest relations window. And uh, so I was traveling with three other people, and they made the flight. So they, already, they got to the park. They went to the, the guest relations window. All the tickets were in my name, the one person who didn't actually get there. So I had, to, I had to make phone calls to change the name into one of the three that were actually there. So they sat at the guest relations uh, window for like 45 to 60 minutes just waiting for the names on the tickets to be switched over so they can collect them. Okay. Now, now you could be saying, 
okay, great. I mean, that's kind of your fault. You missed your, your flight. They had to figure it out. Uh, it shouldn't take that long for me to call and say, Hey, this is who I am. Uh, can you change the name to this person so that they can pick up the tickets? Oh yeah, no problem. Done. Here you are. That's like less than five minutes. Right. So that's, that's Mm -hmm. one thing. Then I got to the park three, uh, I mean, several hours later, I went to the guest relations booth and I was like, Hey, there should be one more ticket in my name. And they remembered from a few hours earlier what had happened. And they're like, Oh yeah, we know about this. And then they looked in the system and my name wasn't there anymore. So there were four tickets. Three of them should have been transferred to someone else. And then that fourth ticket should have been kept in my name. Well, something happened and it wasn't under my name anymore. And even though they knew that I was originally on the list, they didn't give me the ticket. Phone calls were being made. Literally 60 minutes later, I got my ticket. So I was sitting standing mostly in front of the guest relations window when I'd already waited six hours to get there. And I spent a total of three hours in the park before I had to go catch my flight. That does not sound like a good experience. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the greatest experience. But, I mean, you get in the park and it's like, oh, yeah, this is awesome. Sure. I like, it was fun. Well, I think about uh, even like my experiences with, I mean, the companies that I love, uh, Google, I've had awesome customer experiences with. And so I think so, there's so, a lot of so truth. Real, so real quick, because you keep saying customer experience, but this is about customer service. Yes. Which is different. Yes, yes. True, true. Um, and I'm glad you said that, because maybe Disney is not the best. Disney wins customer experience. Customer service is definitely a little bit Sub different of a thing, which I've had great with Google. And uh, we were at Mastermind a few weeks ago, 97 Floors, and the keynote speaker, Seth Godin, it seemed to me, at least what I got out of it, that he didn't word it this way, but it seemed like he was really advocating that customer service, maybe even the customer experience, that is going to be your new marketing, is creating diehard fans where it's like, I had the best experience with this company, they were so good to me, and now I tell everybody, which I think there's a lot of truth to that. So my critical question to this article and it's a question because I've been thinking about my role at Dev Mountain. I think of all the students who graduate, and you have a lot who have great experiences. Some, uh, unfortunately, have some subpar experiences. And so I think, man, what? And, and then we, we just actually broke down. We, we, I sat down with our head of admissions, and we broke down the enrollment rate of what makes a good applicant like that goes all the way through from first lead gen opt-in to butts in the seat in first day class. And there's a huge gap between those that have that come from word of mouth referrals and those who just came from like cold ads or whatnot. Huge difference there. And so we, I started to realize like I need we need to really focus on our alumni and turning them into advocates. What can we do with our customer experience, uh, the onboarding process to really make it uh, a great experience? But then yeah, but then is that my job? Like because then it starts dipping into do the instructors are they dressed well? Uh, is there music during lunch hours? Like, is, is the lunchroom experience great? Because all that plays a role into them um, advocating for the company later on. But where do I draw the line as a marketing person saying, yeah, that influences marketing in a way, but that's not my role. Yeah. So again, you keep going away from customer service. Everything that you just, just described would go under customer experience. Like mm-hmm. how are they experience? What's their experience like? 
Customer service is something you, in my opinion, you want to avoid. If you have a company where you have workflow where people aren't needing customer service, meaning things are going wrong, they have questions, and, they, and you're, not, you're not taking care of them on the website or post-purchase, they, they're still unanswered questions, that's when customer service is needed. So when he says customer, even he switches, right? He mm-hmm. says his first thing, a well-designed customer experience is also marketing. And then, and then he goes into customer experience. Uh, anyway, so customer, uh, I guess that's another problem I have. Customer experience is the umbrella term and customer service would be under that, right? Because the experience starts the moment that they interact with your brand, yep. whether that's with a billboard or whether it's your website, a phone call, their, you know, whatever it is, a, a conversation with one of their friends who has interacted with the, with the brand. But, um, okay. So, so that's one point. The thing that you said was what's the line, where's the line between yeah. the marketing that you feel you've been doing or should do and the customer experience side. And, uh, in my opinion, I think the line is further away than you think. And what I mean by that is customer experience, the experience part should be included in marketing, right? And I say that, well, it's interesting. Marketing typically is pre-sale, right? So you market Mm -hmm. the product. Once it's sold, they become a customer and it's no longer in your realm anymore. So at Vivint, we have a similar... But is that changing? And I think that's what this article is saying, that marketing now extends beyond the cold contact to customer. It's now marketing is really creating diehard fans. And a lot of that is through customer service. I don't think that's changed. I think it's always been the case. I think that the best companies have always been doing that. Yeah. Uh, But now we're just calling it marketing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Right. But I mean, if you think about... Uh, referral programs, right? Customer service departments aren't coming up with referral programs because it's their job. It's not their job to refer and get new customers. That's the marketing's job. But referral uh, programs have existed forever. And it's the marketing people who drive the referral initiatives and who do they target? Existing customers because it's existing customers who are going to refer their friends and family and and so on. Uh, Saying it's the new marketing is stupid because it's actually the old i mean it's the it's it's the old marketing it's the way marketing is done by companies that know what they're doing uh it is interesting though to talk about post sale because there are uh, the the focus usually is on pre-sale once this once the sale is made you know a lot of marketers don't care anymore but in some industries and i and i, I was mentioning this a little bit earlier at vivant we have between sale and install 30% of people drop out. So we sold them, right? They came to the website or they called and they're like, yeah, I want your system. And then between the time they were sold and installed and, and we call that time TTI time to install, uh, differs from direct to home and, uh, inside sales, but we're averaging somewhere between five and seven days between the sale and install. And during that time we have about 30% of people drop off, which is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So, we had that mentality. Once they're sold, who cares? I, I, sorry, that's a little more harsh than what our perception really is. It's, it's not who cares. It's, okay, they were sold. Let's figure out how to get more sales. But then we, uh, we kind of switched our mindset from being marketers that focus on the sale to becoming marketers that 
we started calling ourselves full funnel marketers, meaning we're responsible for the entire funnel, even things that may be slightly out of our control, like install, where, where uh, once, the, once we get the lead in and our sales floor sells them, then it goes to our install team who all they do is install. Like they're not responsible for uh, upping the 30% or uh, driving the 30% down. They're, they're responsible for not putting holes in walls, right? So when we started thinking about ourselves as full funnel marketers and started thinking about the install, that changed our mindset. What can we do in that five-day window that would increase the number of people who normally would fall off to follow through with the install, right? So we started thinking of uh, email nurture campaigns where it's like, they're sold, let's send them an email right off the bat saying, here's what to expect in the next five days. Here's what to expect with, with the uh, products that you've purchased. Here's some testimonials of people in similar situations, similar regions who have had experiences that, that we would want you to have. So that's post sale, right? Uh, anyway, so I, I I think I I don't think it's new I don't think it's new marketing. That's what I'm that's everything that I've said is basically to say customer service is not the new marketing. It's the old existing marketing reskinned in a way that may have kind of an uh updated perspective from uh Micah Solomon who wrote this article. Uh but no, I, like I do not I have a lot of problems with this article. Fair enough. I don't want to spend too spent, much yeah, time on spent, it. We've probably spent a little too much time on that. I will ask, though, real quick, since we're on slightly the topic, Seth Godin's presentation. I know previously you have not had the most favorable opinion of Seth Godin. A, did you enjoy the presentation? And B, did it change, for better or worse, your perception of Seth Godin? Okay, so let me start by saying I've the beef that I have with Seth Godin is mainly that uh, he... He's kind of a, the Tim Robbins of Tony marketing. Robbins. Yeah, Tony Robbins of of marketing, right? Where he's he's very good at speaking. He memorizes his slides. He never has to like. It's just like the cadence is perfect. He's very very good at motivating and inspiring people. Do you My, do you think Gary Vaynerchuk's in that same boat? No, and I'll tell you why. Because although Gary V inspires. He also has very tactical tips, things that you can take away and go apply specifically to your business to make an impact. Seth Godin is more fluff where you read his stuff or you listen to him speak. And in that moment, you're like, yeah, like this is, yeah, this feels good. Like it's, it's, he's more about making you a better person, not a better marketer, which, which is fine, right? That's fine. But when people, when people reference Seth Godin as like this, amazing marketer. The only thing he's good at marketing is himself. It's very rare when you can take very tactical elements from what he's saying and apply it to your business other than work harder, right? If you work harder, you'll be more successful. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll I'll improve myself, but it's not the, it's not the kind of stuff that I, that I gravitate toward, right? Like Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem motivating myself. So I, I don't need some external force like Seth Godin to motivate me, even though so I, I didn't dislike his talk. Uh, he's, you know, he has some good jokes in there that, that are funny and good. I mean, he's a good storyteller. So it was engaging. It was fun. But then you leave, you walk out of that room and it's like, and that's all it was. That's all it was is, is like, it's like, it's the same as going to like the Twilight movie for 
marketing advice, right? You mm-hmm. go, you're entertained, you leave. Okay, well, I didn't learn anything about growing my business, which may be slightly harsh, but that's kind of how I feel. All right. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking either, A, who is Seth Godin, or I want to hear this keynote, just go to YouTube.com, search Seth Godin, 97th floor, and the video is right there for you. Go ahead and have a listen and uh, write in to us and let us know what you thought of Seth Godin's mastermind keynote. Cool. All right. Let's, uh, let's, I mean, we're already almost 20 minutes into this thing. Let's get going. Let's, let's get into digital marketing roulette. This is, this is 3.0. This is the third time that we've done this. We're changing it up just a little bit and going into interview edition. And just to reiterate, in case you skipped this part, as Brandon's queuing up the questions, we have aggregated and collected 36 questions, interview, potential interview questions that either you as someone searching for a new job can uh, prep for, or if you are hiring and want some good questions to ask the people you're interviewing, these could be uh, pretty good. So we're going to, I guess this is going to turn into kind of a role play where Brandon uh, kind of starts to interview me and then we'll kind of act that out a little bit, but then I'll, I'll kind of throw it back at Brandon and, and, and see if he has any follow-up feedback or questions. Yes. And I tried, I filtered through, I've aggregated these from several articles. I tried to take out the ones that were like very specific, like what is this company currently doing well in marketing? Obviously there's no specific company in mind, but uh, some of them do relate to personal stuff to either I myself or, or Jacob, or it's just more general stuff like, what's your opinion on this? So with that said, let's get going here. Let's spin that wheel. This is my favorite part, just the anticipation <laughs> of this ball. I'm always tempted to guess. I feel like it's going to be in the low 30s. Hey, no, this one's actually 24. Uh, here we go. We got uh, what steps slash methods would you take to define a target market for a company? What steps would I what? What steps or, or methods do you go through to help a company determine what their target market is? Are there okay. tools? Are there processes? Tools or processes? Well, let me start with a process because this is advice that we often gave uh, in Market Campus classes because one of the biggest questions people ask is what platform should I be on, right? So from a social standpoint, what platform should I be on? And the answer, the short answer, and then we'll, we'll get into a little bit more detail, but the short answer is you go where they are, right? So when you're talking about, mar- you're talking about market research, finding where your people are <clears throat> it's very industry specific right you can't just uh if i were in an interview a real interview i would have done this research prior mm-hmm. for the very specific industry right whether it's home security home automation uh coding boot camps things like that uh so you do the research on the industry but it's actually pretty easy to do right the easiest way to do this is you go to google so there's a tool you go to google and you type in that industry. And then you look at the results and you find out which social platforms are showing up. So if you type in home security, and which is probably a poor example because uh, not too many people talk specifically about home security. It's kind of one of those mm-hmm. more boring topics that don't strike up you know, viral conversation on social. But 
uh, coding bootcamp may be a better example where you type in coding bootcamp and you start to see which social platforms Pinterest probably wouldn't be on there. Snapchat probably wouldn't be on there. You'd probably find Facebook, uh, maybe some Twitter. Uh, and then those become the platforms that you target. And that's where your audience is going to be. So that's, that's kind of the shorter ish answer. What would you add to that, Brandon? Um, no, that's, that's, that's really good. I would say, assuming you're sitting on top of some existing data, obviously there's a lot of, uh, interesting insight within tools like Google, Google analytics, also just looking at your social insights, like Facebook insights and getting some basic stuff. Uh, what content does well, um, YouTube again, like there's a lot of tools out there where if you just start putting out some initial content and see who gravitates towards it, that'll at least help you narrow down some of the more basic demo information like age gender region and whatnot and then after that then you start digging into uh what are their wants and needs and a lot of that is especially if you're an early stage company reach out to your current customers and interview them and just ask them questions like hey where do you get your news all that stuff more often more often than not they're happy to help and you can get a lot of interesting insight to build off of and scale tweak that data as you go along yeah the last thing i would add is there are tools to get more granular, right? Because when you start to identify the platforms that your audience is on, then you can dive deeper into each platform to determine when these people are on, right? Mm-hmm. So something like a, uh, I think Follower Wonk is a, uh, does it for Twitter where, where you can, you can uh, put in specific influencers or whatever and determine when their followers uh, are most active during the day, not just during the day, but which days mm-hmm. in the week. And I think each platform has a similar tool, but follower wonk can be used for Twitter. Uh, you could put in your own, you could put in your own, t- uh, handle, right? So like Vivint, for example, I can just type in, uh, their Twitter handle and it would show me here's when Vivint's Twitter followers are the most active on these days. Uh, at these times, I know Pinterest has specific times. It's it's actually really interesting. Pinterest, off the like, I always remember this. the The most active times on Pinterest. Do you remember this? Was uh, in the morning, right? Oh, no, yeah, in yeah. the morning, and then right after work, like yep. like literally like eight thirty a.m. and five thirty p.m. Uh, Pinterest spikes. I wonder if that is people looking to make breakfast. So they're looking for recipes and they're looking to make dinner. Then dinner recipes. Very well could be. Could be. All right. Well, should we move on to the next question? Let's move on. That was a good that was a good spin. That was a good spin. Alright, I'm guessing fourteen. Oh, close. No, not so close now. Twenty one. Twenty one. Pretty close. Uh, let's see here. Question that was number. 21. 21. I already took the ball off. Jeez. Oh, this is a good one here. How do you feel about PPC advertising? Wow. You know what? First of all, I would never, ever interview for a PPC advertising position, so this is an, this is an interesting one for me. That's why they might ask you. Like, yeah, are yeah. you a hater? Or are you saying, oh, I rely on it to cover up all my crappy no, that's SEO funny. work? You know what? The longer I've been in this, uh, in this career, the more I've appreciated PPC uh, when I first started, it always seemed very competitive where it's like SEO versus PPC, right? And we've even had an episode or two yep. where we've had PPC experts on and we've argued with them. Uh, shout out to Brigham Dallas there. What do I think about PPC? 
PPC definitely has its place. I'm, and I've, I've been very vocal about this. I'm very biased towards SEO. Uh, the biggest arguments between the two are length of time it takes SEO to work. Uh, and then like PPC costs, right? Cause it's not free. So you talk about cost and length of time, uh, before it becomes effective. Okay. Let me, let me get specific with PPC. PPC, in my opinion, is one of the best ways to test. So you can test uh, copy, right? So if you're doing ad copy, you measure click-through rates on your ad copy, and the best converting click-through rate uh, title should become your title tag for any organic pages that you're trying to rank for. And that's because those are the, uh, that's what they see, right? That's, that's what they see. That's where you get uh, better uh, click-through with organic. So you can use PPC as a way of testing into organic title tags. So in that way, I really like PPC. Uh, PP, paid advertising. Um, the one thing I don't like about it is how much it costs, right? I mean, it's a bidding system. So depending on your industry, and I always use this as an example because it's so absurd. My brother is a lawyer. He's a personal injury attorney. And I've never seen clicks cost as much as they do in personal injury. The last time I looked, do you want to take a guess as to how much one click costs in, in, in personal injury? I think you've asked me this before and I guessed low. So I'm going to guess high. I'm going to go $115. 115. So it's, uh, it was around 115 a few years ago. Now it's closer to 180. Dang. So think about that. Okay. You type in personal injury attorney, Las Vegas, and you see the ads up there. You click on one of those babies and you just cost that company 180 bucks. One click. That's crazy. So everybody go do that right now. Yeah. So, so that's one, I mean, that's, uh, that's one thing that's kind of lame, but you can justify it, right? Because the only reason they cost so high is because attorneys are willing to pay that much for a sing, for a single lead. And, and, and if, if they weren't getting clients through that method, they wouldn't be paying that much and it wouldn't cost that much. The last thing I'll say on paid advertising is, uh, and obviously I'm coming at this, looking at it through the lens of SEO, right? How can PPC help me as an SEO? And uh, cost per click. The cost per click metric is really, really indicative of the quality of lead. So if you're doing keyword research and you're comparing search volume alone, I mean, first of all, that's one of the worst things you could do. But CPC, cost per click, gives you intent. It's one of the best indicators of the intent, meaning the higher the click costs, the more people are willing to pay for it because the more likely they are to convert into a customer or a client or however you, however you define what your, you know, what a win is or whatever. Mm -hmm. So CPC, that's one, I mean, that's literally one of the greatest tools of paid is giving you an idea of how qualified a lead can be based on the keywords you're targeting. Let me add to that. Uh, I, I love PPC for testing and I've realized that more and more as the days have gone on been doing a lot of that with like dev mountain testing out new potential products and whatnot it's a super quick way to you know you figure out five potential buyer personas and you go ahead and um, test out those with with a little bit of budget behind each one i will say ppc is great in my mind for supplementing marketing i don't think it should be the bulk of your marketing and we're i've even noticed that we're taking more and more dollars away from our ppc budget and we're putting it towards like micro influencers and whatnot, where it's still kind of paid messaging, but it's it appears through a much more organic way to 
uh, of their audience and whatnot. So kind of paying people who have a trusted voice versus just us doing cold ads. That's kind of my mini take on PPC. All right, well, let's go to the next question here. Seven. Oh, you might be right. Just lucky number seven. Hey, we've got seven. Are that you was, serious? That was pretty good. All right. Well, I mean, what am I, you see the ball right here, of course. Uh, let's see here. Number seven, we have got, oh, you're going to love this question. This question was designed for you. Describe your most successful marketing campaign. <laughs> Sell me on Jacob Perry. Why was why was that uh, why was that designed for me? Well, I, I, it was ac- I did not write this question, but I thought of you. I'm like Jacob's going to love this question. Tell me how you define success. Is hey, that the question? Your most is, successful. This is it. Just says describe your most successful marketing campaign. So, what was it, and why did you define it as the most successful? Like in my you, career or my current position? Let's say your career since you were born. Since I was born, wow. We're That's going, going, back we're going lemonade all stand time, days. All time most successful campaign. Uh, okay, this might be obvious maybe to you. Uh, I won. I can't say I won because 97 Floor has it on their shelf, but the campaign I ran won a Stevie Award. Pretty good success. Uh, and that is the top 10 coolest companies to work for. That's a good one. You're very familiar with this, Brandon. I am. Uh, We've repurposed it in, we, a, in a way. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's you who emulated the campaign. Yes. So the top 10 coolest companies list. Let, let me tell you why this was such a cool thing. I was on this kick pretty early on, and, and the, the client I was working for was OC Tanner. They had a blog. And OC Tanner, for those of you that don't know, they, well, most of you will think, O.C. Tanner, that's a jewelry store. And that's true. They have jewelry. But the jewelry is like less than 5% of their annual revenue. What they focus on is employee recognition. So they have companies like Pepsi come to them and be like, dude, or dude, they come, they come to O.C. Tanner, dudes. They go to O.C. Tanner and they say, hey, we've got thousands of employees and we need to have a program in place that shows them that we appreciate them. So OC Tanner takes over the program and says, you know, every year we'll send out a pamphlet. And, and uh, many of you have probably seen this. You like when you're at a company for five years, they give you a little pamphlet or brochure and they're like, pick something out of here and you get a watch or you get a, you know, new pair of shoes or headphones or whatever. Well, that's what they do. And uh, so OC Tanner, uh, pretty early on, I, I was on this kick where, you know what? People love. Uh, what was the word that I used? Um, vanity, right? Mm-hmm. People are so vain. Companies are vain. What, what can we do to feed off of this vanity? So I created a blog series called Coolest Companies to Work for, Top 10 Coolest Companies to Work For. And what I did was I alternated between cities every single month. So it was a monthly blog post. We started in Boston. You know, we jumped around from Dallas to Seattle to Miami to Denver. And every month we focused on a new city and we collected... 10 companies in that city after doing some research that we thought were the coolest to work for. And after a time, it started to get some traction, right? So at the very beginning, we, we would publish the articles and then we would tweet at each of the companies saying, hey, you guys won. You're on the top 10 list. And, and at, at first it was kind of like, oh, cool. Uh, we just won this no-name award that no one has ever heard about and has never existed. But as time went on, 
we started to see that uh, it started to catch fire on Twitter and companies started sharing it more often and then their followers would follow and then questions started coming up like, hey, how do we get our company on this list? And then we started to, uh, dis- or we decided to start a nomination process instead of just doing the research ourselves. And then it got so popular that we started asking the companies, we, we would identify 20 companies and then reach out to them and say, hey, why do you think you should be on this list? And then they started generating the content for us. So they wrote their little blurb that we would use. Then it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to where we had OC Tanner start to actually make physical awards. So medal awards that they would mail to their sales rep in whatever city we were in, we were focusing on. And they would hand deliver these awards to the company as kind of a lead um, opportunity. And they started getting leads and they started closing deals because these companies would be on the list, which would put OC Tanner on their radar and realize, oh, we need an employee recognition program. And then they would hire OC Tanner and OC Tanner's contracts are worth millions of dollars, right? One, Mm -hmm. one client could be $10 million in one year. So anyway, as far as success, the success there was the social metrics were through the roof. We were getting big companies sharing the award and the link to the article. Uh, we were generating leads for OC Tanner. So there was more than just the vanity metrics of shares, likes, retweets, but there was actual physical money being exchanged because they were getting new customers. Uh, and that is why I want a Stevie award. I love it. It is a good campaign. It is a good campaign. I've learned. How's your campaign doing? It's actually doing really well. Top 10 coolest tech companies to work for. Yes. It's been awesome. So we've done it in Dallas. So the the goal was twofold. You know, obviously you get the social and the traffic and all that, try to get some leads. But also just employer relations is a big deal for Dev Mountain because we want to build good relationships with tech companies uh, so that they can hire our grads, which make a better experience. Um and I would say um, it's been very successful. We just launched our Phoenix one this month, and we've already had big tech companies, even like Weebly, um, yeah. who I'm sure you've heard of. Yep. It, it's funny that they've emailed either it's like a recruiter or an HR person saying, or not HR, but like PR, uh, being like, hey, we love the list. We're really disappointed we weren't on it. Uh, here's a lot of our awards. Uh, here's this. We would love to be get, reconsidered next yeah, year. Yeah, reconsidered next year. What can we do? And so we've taken that as an opportunity like, oh, hey, yeah, we're, we're coming with a more formal process to nominate companies and whatnot. In the meantime, here's so and so who's over re- employer relations within the Phoenix community. She would love to connect with you and learn more about the company. And obviously, you know, maybe you could hire some of our awesome developers. So, in that sense, it's, Is it's that already the idea. Been I was going to ask, are you trying to find basically create a place where these companies now know Dev Mountain is an authority. They're training people. They can use that as a place to hire new developers. That's probably one part. What about, so first of all, Dev Mountain is in Arizona, right? They have an office in Phoenix. Phoenix. Is it just Phoenix and Utah? And Dallas. Oh, and Dallas. Okay, that makes sense. So are you also trying to potentially get uh, companies to send employees to your program to be trained no it's primarily just because in the boot camp industry there's still i mean in the code industry i should say there's still a big stigma of like hiring a lot of companies don't trust code boot camp graduates and so we're trying to a just get our name out there especially in these newer communities that we're in like phoenix and dallas 
uh, to where they're like, oh, I never heard of Dev Mountain. Let's look into them. And then hopefully maybe even we've already invited some of the people like, hey, come check out our campus. We'd love to tell you more about Dev Mountain. We, we would love to learn more about you. And I think just them walking through and seeing the process that students go through, it makes them think twice about, man, maybe we should take, uh, you know, boot camp graduates a little bit more seriously because it looks like the program they're going through is pretty awesome. So that's, yeah. that was our main goal is just really just to get attention uh, going and, and get some, some ideas going. If I would add to that, my most successful campaign, which is a really tough question to answer, one that comes to mind, and maybe it's not the most, is the Clash Royale article. Do you remember when I, of course I do. did that? That one's done super well, and I put very little effort into it, but essentially there was, was an a, email collection Yeah, it was Clash, Clash Royale, uh, which was a spinoff of, what's the main game? Clash of Clans. And uh, they had tournaments that were really hard to get into, so uh, my brother and I just made like a... Uh, we paid for a tournament and then we just told people, Hey, if you want to get into the tournament, you just got to go fill out this type form and, uh, and then we'll, we'll send you a password to go into the tournament because it was, they fill up so fast and we ended up uh, collecting 600 email addresses in like two nights. And, uh, we had a handful of those actually turn into students. So when you did the ROI, I don't have the specific numbers in front of me. If you type in uh, hash, we are sorry, not hash. We hacked uh, Clash Royale email addresses or something like that. You can read the article, but uh, that was a fun little uh, case study I created, just like kind of hacking like trends in video games to try to pull in actual customers. It's not your typical Facebook ad or yeah. AdWords type approach. I feel like at the around that same time, Pokemon Go was really big, and we were talking about potential ways of using yes, Pokemon I remember, Go. Yeah, we talked about that to collect uh, email addresses. All right, here we go. Question number, I don't know. What have we asked? Three questions so far? Yes. Question number four. All right, I want this to be a good one. All right. Number 14. Sorry, my uh, thing just froze here. Ah, that's funny. This is uh, funny it fell in this order here. Describe a marketing strategy that failed. It's all the question says. It could be something in the news. It could be a personal one. But uh, no, I'll, I'll it, use a personal one. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of that. So I used to. Uh, first of all, let, let me uh, let me throw. Let, let me give some props to Paxton Gray. So Paxton, he was he was on my team when we did the top ten coolest companies list. He was paramount to the success of most of the campaigns that we did together. Uh, but he's also involved in one of the biggest fails we've had. And that is, uh, we had a, we had a client defensive driving.com. It was one of my favorite clients. I remember they, they were, they were the type of client that, in fact, you had them as a client after I left and they were the type that always said, yes, you go to them and say, Hey, this is a, this is an idea that we have. It could be off the wall. It could be a little bit more expensive. And they were just like, yes, 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 do it. And one of those was, uh, this was pretty early on. And, uh, and when interactives were getting pretty popular and interactives, uh, meaning like, uh, I mean, it was an, uh, basically it was an interactive game, but it was, uh, the play was let's, let's bring awareness to, we wanted to create something viral that brought awareness to drunk driving. Do you remember? I'm I'm sure I remember this this. for a long time. You could still find this, but I don't think you can even find this campaign online anymore, but, uh, we created an interactive game. So if you just imagine 
uh, you're driving a car. So it starts out you're, I don't know, you're in a bar. So there's just this table and there's a big mug of beer and you determine how much, how much beer gets drunk, right? So you can change the level of beer in the cup and then you grab the car keys and then that determines how drunk you'll be. Saying this out loud right now seems so, so stupid. (laughs) So you grab the keys, you go get in the car and depending on how much beer was in the glass determines uh, how hard it is to drive. So this is just using your arrow keys left, right. You're in, you're on a street with three lanes and uh, the more drunk you are, the more beer you drink, the, uh, uh, the more delayed the controls work, the more blurry it is. Um, And then you just, you're just driving and you switch the lanes when there are obstacles in the road. So there's a car, there's a whatever. And, um, we actually, uh, we came to you cause your client was drugrehab.org, And we did, a we shared cost. We were like, Hey, let's, let's put these two companies together. Uh, drug rehab kind of sponsoring this, uh, alcohol awareness yep. campaign. We spent more money on that thing than I think I spent on any other campaign. And by the end, we didn't even launch it. Yeah, I remember this. It was so bad. Uh, and, and just f- f- those of you out there, uh, it didn't matter how much beer you drank. You always ended up in an accident. Like there was no <laughs> winning. Like you couldn't win in this game. You always got hit by a semi truck. And, uh, and I mean, it was so bad. I remember we were so embarrassed that we didn't even launch the campaign. Uh, I say launch. We may have shared it on social and done this stuff, but we didn't put any promotional dollars behind it we were we just we ditched it the fun part of that is that paxton and i we had a radio going in the car and paxton and i just in a stairwell grabbed we'd grabbed kind of a a a tape recorder not a tape recorder but like a audio recorder a pretty nice uh, audio recorder and we recorded what the radio we we just did all the radio Uh, yeah i remember that i thought that was i thought that was pretty cool anyway it, it was the biggest fail because it just, I mean, we spent so much money and didn't get, I mean, I remember we were praying that our contact at defensive driving would never bring it up again. Like you spent all this money. <laughs> how'd that go? And they didn't, they never asked about it. We just swept it under the rug and kept and, and, and moved forward with it. That's funny. Um, what about you? Well, when I, so I had the advantage of seeing this question ahead of time. So you planned an answer? I don't. I haven't planned an answer, but the, it's funny. The first campaign that came to mind was also with the same client. <laughs> oh, really? Uh huh. Was it the I, red, uh, the red thumb reminder? Yeah. And I, I don't. I'm not saying it was a failure, but uh, it was definitely not my proudest campaign. I think the idea behind it was a good idea. It was just, I think, in my opinion, very sloppy. Well, this execution. is when you tried to basically so it's very hard to create a hybrid campaign that captures both traditional marketing and digital yes and that's kind of and what it's you're a doing, campaign right? that technically has already like it, we we kind of try to hijack an existing movement and like let's bring this to Houston type thing so it wasn't even an original idea to where we could get like news like there wasn't really a goal in mind and so when i look back at it it's like okay yeah we got some good feel good videos so, out so, of it so what you do cuz I mean, you you flew down to Houston. I remember you had like a table on the street. I don't remember. You flew down. You you tried to get people to commit to not texting and driving. Yes. Yeah. So we made a page where like, you know, I think it was like defensivedriving.com slash red thumb or something like that uh, with this red thumb reminder campaign. 
and we flew down to Houston, set up a table in like a very busy area of downtown Houston, and we just tried to get people to uh, sign a petition, essentially, or, or, or a promise that they will, uh, and then they get their nail painted red. And right there. I'm not going to text and drive. So the idea was that then we take a picture of them, and and we also collect their email address. Like, hey, well, we're taking photos. Put your email down. So we're collecting some email addresses. We're getting people to post on their social, tagging us and whatnot, which people did, and we did get emails. Uh, so by that, it was a success. What's but the volume just? The volume was very low, considering like we had to fly multiple people out there. Uh, so you have all the airline costs, you have the hotel costs, just all the travel stuff. When you actually add up the amount of money versus what we got, I don't feel that that was a worthwhile campaign. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we keep dogging on defensive driving. We and may- a lot of it was, I think the lesson learned was we didn't do really much pre-hype prep. And, and prep. Like, I think a lot of the plan was we were going to notify publications ahead of time. And there's going to be articles about how there's this event happening downtown and just none of that ever We're giving out really hot dogs happened. or something? We didn't even do that. It was just we waved a sign. So a lot of people oh, just, you definitely oh, got to give hot dogs. People avoided would, us because they thought we were selling stuff. stuff for sure. Yeah, there was just a lot of a lot of little things that just led to a not so great campaign. So let me just say this before we move on: uh, the reason why defensive driving was so open to us trying new things was because we were so successful at what we were doing. We made them so much money that when I talk about spending a lot of money on a on a failed interactive, that's I mean we. We got them. We got them ranking number one in almost every main term related to defensive driving, and they were getting so much money from what we were doing. So I don't. Anyway, yeah. I just don't want people. To, things still gosh, paid you off. Got, you got screwed defensive driving on every campaign you did. Yes, things paid off with All right. them. Let's go to the next question. How many more do we got? Uh, one, maybe two, depending All on right. how long it takes. Here we go. Twenty-eight. Oh, it went longer than I thought it would. No, it was close. We got uh, 32. 32. All right, here we go. What are some of the most overlooked areas of marketing today? Oh, this is, um, gosh, this changes, right? Like, oh, man, I always have follow-up questions. (laughs) When I, it depends on what companies I've worked at. I need you to clarify. Is this industry like is this marketing industry or is this this is the my guy, experience? It's just in your experience. You're just being asked. What do you feel like are some of the most overlooked areas of marketing Man, right I, now? I really like this question. So when I was at Myriad Genetics, this is my job before I was at Vivint. Uh, no, I'm I'm going to go straight. I'm going to go straight to email. So email marketing. That's what you're saying is the most overlooked. Yeah, and I say that because. When, I feel like I have to clarify. Everybody does email. Yep. But I think most people do email wrong. So when I say, when, when you say overlooked, I think they're overlooking the correct way of doing email. All right. So if I were to specifically call out Vivint, which I will, Vivint's email program is really lacking. And, and it's, mostly, it's mostly buy-in, right? You think about email... How much does email cost? Not a lot. I, I mean, it's so cheap. You talk about paid advertising. You talk about uh, almost any other th- affiliates, channel part. I mean, you almost uh, almost everything 
costs money and email is so 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 cheap even if you buy email addresses which you know whether or not you do that is is a question for another time but buying emails is cheap and email is still one of the number one ways of communicating and getting new customers and when i say people are doing it wrong uh let me give you an example when i was at myriad and i think that our email program at myriad was pretty good i'm not saying it was perfect but I think it was pretty good because we, we planned this out. In fact, I, I built out the email program at Myriad and we, we created three tracks. And by describing how we did this, I think it will do a pretty good job of illustrating where the gaps are in email. When we had a lead come in, we, so there were three potential tracks they could, they could take. They could take a track of education, someone who had no idea what genetic testing was, someone who uh, was a physician who just wanted to learn more, right? So they took an education track. Our education track was ongoing. That was the stuff that we, we created uh, ongoing. It was always unique. Uh, if, they, if they tested with us even one time, they then went into, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. I mixed this up. The first track was a nurture track. So the first one's a nurture track. It was like six emails. When we first got a lead, we would, we would take them through an educational six emails saying, Here's what genetic testing is. Here uh, are the types of people you should do. Basically, by the end of the six emails, if they had read them all, they would know how to uh, do genetic testing. I mean, or, or at least the importance. It was, it was a way of getting buy-in. If after their first test, we, we dumped them into education, and that was where we, uh, that was our normal email subscription where they would just get the latest content that we we're creating. If they went three months or I don't remember what it was six weeks without testing even one time they would get bumped down into our win back track and that was basically a, a variation of our first education track because either they lost interest or they figured it wasn't important anymore or didn't understand the impact it would have so we created content to win them back right my point in in, in talking about these three tracks is that we were very thorough and put a lot of thought into where they would be uh, and why. And then we created content to trigger certain actions, testing. When I see email now, even big companies that are like, have super big followings, like as an example, Dollar Shave Club. I'm a member of Dollar Shave Club. They email me way too often and it's always product focused. It's always just a, uh, it's, it's just, it's their store. It's here is our, pro here are our products. And I'm not kidding, two or three times a week, I'm getting basically the same email with some uh, really good copy. Like their headline is great, but then you just get in there and it's like, here are the products. That's not, that's not good email marketing. They do email marketing all the time. There are companies that do email all the time, but they're not putting effort into it. They're just sending emails and hoping people click. And I bet Dollar Shave Club gets people to click, but that doesn't mean that they're hitting their potential. Anyway. You're not getting educational advice emails from I'm, Dollar Shave Club. No, I mean, they do have an email that goes out that is uh, um, an aggregation of, or an aggregate of all their current blog posts. And their blog posts, I don't, I don't know if you follow their blog posts, but they, they post articles that are like eye-catching. Like, I'll why do people have pubic hair, right? <laughs> like, like that's, those are the kind of questions they answer on their blog. Uh, what's the point of armpit hair or uh, how long does sperm survive? Bef uh, you know, whatever. It's just like almost 
border i don't know and, and they're real protective of their brand so email marketing is my answer a lot of people do it but a lot of people do it wrong i love it you know what my answer is what customer service shut up i'm just kidding <laughs> uh if i had to pick i mean i guess the question wasn't to pick one but uh first thing that comes to mind is i think influencer marketing is uh under is overlooked and maybe more specifically micro influencer marketing everybody wants to work at least everybody who is on the influencer marketing train they're all trying to go for the big dogs what do you consider sponsorships micro influencer is the it's not the household name youtubers or instagrammers it might be that uh youtuber only has 1500 followers it might be that instagram account that only has a few thousand uh followers but they're they're consistent like they're active and they have in they, they have followers that engage so it's not a huge following it's on a micro scale but those 400 people that are always active they're going to have a big trust in that person's opinion and it's super super cheap to work with those people because most of them aren't working with anyone um and you can get in there early while they're still growing so i would love to go to like socialblade.com and any influencers i'm thinking about uh, working with I, I like to look at their history and if i see that kind of hockey stick even if it's just the beginning phases i get excited because okay yeah this person only has three thousand youtube subscribers but they're on track to have a hundred thousand in 18 months how do you how do you find influencers like that like the ones that only have three thousand sub- subscribers but you see the potential like how do you originally find them yeah how do you how do you mine them out uh, I mean, obviously, it's the easy ones to start out is just typing in your industry. It's like, you know, coding tutorials is something we do or design tutorials. There's a lot of tutorials. Um, but then there's influencers that have nothing to do with designer code. But we, we find that a lot of our students or people in the industry find them. So what we've actually just done is we're currently working with uh, Brigham Young University uh, with an internship team. And that the assignment that they've been tasked with first was to create a survey. They just created a Qualtrics survey and send it out to industry professionals and or uh, students in like CS degree departments. And it asked nothing about coding or anything. It just asked like, where do you get your news from? What social networks do you use often? Uh, what If you use YouTube, what YouTubers do you follow? What are your favorite Instagram accounts? And that gives us a pretty good idea. We told them to get at least 100 uh, survey responses, which they've gotten more than that. Uh, but now we're going through the actual data and saying, okay, among these professional developers and soon to be developers, a lot of them get their news from this place. Uh, most of them use this social network. Uh, we've had several people mention this YouTuber who has nothing to do with coding or design, but a lot of developers tend to follow this person. Let's see if there's something we can do there. And again, those are like on the macro scale a lot of the bigger ones. So then we try to find who are similar influencers within that niche. And so you kind of have to experiment a little bit, but uh, I don't know. Influencer marketing for what you're getting, I think is still dramatically underpriced compared to the amount of money people spend just on clicks for stuff. Yeah. Influencer marketing is interesting because it's relatively new, but is also going through a huge change. So influencer marketing, and I'll use YouTube as, a, as an example. There are a lot of YouTube uh, influencers. The model that existed last year and, and before was basically a company would pay an influencer to mention or uh, it's almost product placement. It's almost a testimonial, you know, or they'll have that person 
uh, create the video their own their own way or whatever. And the idea was we pay you a lot of money and then we get we get return on our investment by the number of people who buy our product after seeing your video. Well, companies pretty quickly found out that that model doesn't work. It doesn't work to just pay an influencer to say this thing because then it's all advertising e and yep. and people to do it. So the model is changing pretty dramatically. And now it's almost, uh, we talked about the Harmon brothers and how they have skin in the game. Well, now companies are getting more savvy and they're saying, you know, as I work with these influencers, what I'm paying for is them to talk about my product. What I want to pay them for is to sell my product. So now influencers are getting paid for each sale, right? Yep. So it's no longer a sponsorship. Now it's an affiliate. Now, I want you to sell my product. I'll pay you a cut of every single person who buys my product. So if he fails and only gets one sale, he gets a cut of that one sale. Fine. That's how they get paid. It's not a flat fee. And now they have to put more effort into uh, a more strategic social strategy, a more strategic uh, uh, promotional strategy, how they engage their audience, how they make it seem uh, more organic. And then they're responsible for the sell not just saying the product name on, on the channel. So yeah. that's, that's, that's one of the biggest changes in influencer marketing that's, that's happening right now that kind of sucks for influencers because they have to work harder for their money, but is way, uh, way better of a partnership because now brands can actually benefit from the partnership. I agree. I agree. All right. We got time for one more? Nope. All right. We're out of time. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, real quickly, let me. Uh, I, I usually don't do this, but uh, since we've planned far enough ahead, there are a couple of things that we're going to be talking about next week <clears throat> that has gotten us a little bit riled up. Uh, the topic recently has come up about gated versus ungated content uh, and whether you should gate it, whether you shouldn't gate it, circumstances under which gating it would be okay, and other circumstances which gating it would be detrimental. So next week, we're going to be talking gated versus ungated content. The other thing that we're going to bring up next week is the Mueller investigation into the Russian conspiracy uh, of how the Russians influenced our election process. Now, we're, before you start to think, what does that have to do with digital marketing? We're getting marketing? political over here. Uh, it actually won't be a political discussion. Uh, for those of you who, f- who follow the story, the indictments have been coming through for employees of a Russian digital marketing agency. And what we're going to be talking about specifically is what that digital marketing agency did to influence our election process. And you may be surprised by how common their tactics were. That's next week. Until then, we'll catch you below the fold. Stop. Hammer time. Because John Hammond's on next week.